Our scripture lesson today comes from the gospel, the good news, according to Matthew. Uh, This is uh, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. I recommend that to you. Um, Here is uh, our scripture for today. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Today, you and I step into something that is not just passed down from one generation or two, not even just a hundred years old or even 500 years, but thousands and thousands of years old. And, and I've, I've come to believe that the things worth reading, the things worth committing to memory, the things worth putting into my life are those things that outlast me, outlast my family, outlast any sort of fad that's going on. And so I find that there is a solid place to stand when you find truth that is still around 2,000 years later. Amen? It's worth looking at and saying, okay, why have Christians all around the world and every different language prayed this prayer? And what does it mean? Many of you, like, like me, learn this prayer as a young child, and it just becomes sort of rote. It just kind of comes right off your tongue. And I know this to be true for myself, that that's a temptation for me, because I have a good friend um, that lives down in, in Texas, and he listens to us each week on a podcast, and he says, would you do me a favor? Will you slow down on the Lord's Prayer? It's like, I can't even keep up when I'm walking. Like, okay, well, when, when we, we know we're kind of burning through the Lord's Prayer, maybe we're not really soaking it in. Maybe we're not slowing down to say, well, what does this really mean? So today and for the next six weeks, we're in a new sermon series called The Lord's Prayer. There is a book uh, that goes along with it. There's a children's book that is available to every single family. We bought these back in October. We're very excited to get those out. So even if you don't have kids or grandkids yet, we want you to have one. You can bless a neighbor child or uh, hold it for your grandchild whenever that comes. Or however you want to do that. But we want people to know this prayer. Because it's the only prayer that Jesus said pray this way. So it's a great time to invite a friend. And so today we're going to start, and each week we're going to, there's six petitions, uh, one for each week. And so uh, this week we're going to start at the beginning. I hear that's a very good place to start. Right? So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Y'all use hallowed much in your daily life? Probably not. So Jesus prayed in lots and lots of ways. 
Lots and lots of ways. So um, Jesus was a person of prayer all through his life. So if you, have, if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out or you can go on the app. And for those of you online, you can go on the app and I hope you'll um, you know, engage with us online and talk to one another. And so um, as a way of introduction, Jesus prays and gives thanks to God before meals and miracles. Each week when we come to the Lord's Supper, we talk about, and Jesus gave thanks to you, Almighty God. That's just what he did. And in a, in a similar way, we now pattern ourselves that we, when we pray, we pray before breakfast and we pray before lunch. And we say thank you, God, uh, again uh, at our supper time and before our head hits the pillow. And so we, we see this over and over again. We also see Jesus praying, connecting with the Father before he would perform a miracle. And, and it's not necessarily that he didn't know what to do. It was really so that the, everybody else would know what was going on. So Jesus would pray before meals and miracles. In the Gospel of John, it says it this way. So they took away the stone. This is about the raising of Lazarus. And Jesus looked upward and said, he prayed, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. That you sent me. So meals and miracles, this is just Jesus' regular, daily part of life. And, and that's one of the things I hope that you will uh, learn here and gain here is a lifestyle or a rule of life so that when you pray, it's just as natural as breathing. When you talk to God, it's as natural as talking to a neighbor because it's just a part of your life. Have you ever had someone that you needed to have a very serious conversation with but you hadn't talked to them in over a year? Do you know what that feels like? It can be kind of scary. And so often when people say, well, you know, I, I don't really know how I would talk to God about that. Well, because maybe they hadn't really talked to God in about a year. And now there's something important and it feels kind of scary. But you know, it doesn't have to be that way. You can just talk to God every day and then whether it's a little thing or a big thing, you just stay in conversation. So meals and miracles just in the everydayness of life. And then Jesus also taught people that prayer is something that's to connect us to God and others. It's never to separate us from God or others. You know, like, well, that sounds weird. How could a prayer ever separate you from someone else? Well, if you've been in ministry as long as I have, there was this thing in small country churches called prayer concerns in the middle of the service. And if you weren't careful, you could simply label it gossip hour. Because the people that stood up to pray often were not asking prayers for themselves, but for so-and-so who had a really hard time last night out at the bar, or whatever that might be. And if you're not careful, prayer or the Bible can be used as a weapon, not as a means of God's grace and love. And so Jesus is really clear about this. He's like, you don't ever use prayer as a weapon. That is the exact opposite of what it's meant to do. So Jesus actually told a story in in the Bible. He calls those parables. And Jesus told a story about prayer to correct this so-and-so, to correct the haughty and to lift up the humble. He said the story goes like this. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, not in God, but in themselves, that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a very religious person, uh, one that knew the law, and the other a tax collector. And so, if do you all know melodramas? Have you ever done a melodrama, like in high school? You know, when they hold up these signs and everybody goes, yay, and somebody else holds up a sign, they go, boo. Anyway, it was a thing back in the day, right? 
And so if you were in a Jewish community and you heard a Pharisee, what you thought of, if you were in that context, was, yay, because these are people that knew the Bible. These were people that knew God. They knew the will of God, and they were the ones you were supposed to listen to. And a tax collector was someone who worked for Rome. They were very wealthy, and they could buy a contract from Rome, and they could extort any amount of money from a region, and they got to keep the difference between the contract they had paid Rome and whatever they got from you. And so every time somebody heard tax collector, you know what they thought? Boo. Right? So that's what they were expecting when they would hear the story. But Jesus flips it on its head. He says, the Pharisee standing by himself was praying like this. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Ugh. Right? God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. Now, is there anything wrong with fasting twice a week? No, that's very good. Methodists historically have fasted on Wednesdays for the betrayal and Fridays for the crucifixion, sun up to sundown. You're just missing breakfast and lunch, and then you eat a late dinner. And so that's, that's normative. That's good. That can be very helpful. Tithing, absolutely biblical and helpful in your life to stay in right relationship with God and money. So there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is he's letting everybody know it. Right? He's lifting himself up. He says, but Jesus says, but the tax collector, the one that you wouldn't think of, was standing far off and he would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, if you're not yet a person of prayer, that's a great prayer. Any of us can say that prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Will you say that with me? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and all sinner means here is one that's separated from God in some way. And we all are in some way, either public or private. And then Jesus says this. I tell you that this man, the tax collector of all people, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And read this last part with me. But all who humble themselves will be exalted. And that's partly why we kneel and pray. We're humbling ourselves before God. It actually comes from um, the Middle Ages where a knight would take off their helmet and place it to the side and they would kneel and bare their neck to their king to say, you can do with me what you want. You can knight me and make me a disciple and raise me to life or you can take it the other way and end me. That's why we kneel. That's why we pray. That's why we bow our heads. It's a sign of submission. It's a posture of humility to say, God, do with me what you want because be merciful to me. A sinner. Jesus' last prayer before his betrayal was not for a meal, wasn't for a miracle, and it wasn't to teach people how to pray. His last prayer was for unity. Unity for everybody who would follow him to love and care for and be connected to everybody else who follows him. And, and you may not remember this, but the, the truth of the matter is that when you were baptized here or baptized anywhere... You were baptized to be connected to every other person in the world that's baptized. That's what it means to be a part of the church universal. So if you're traveling in Africa or China or anywhere else in all the world, Ukraine these days, every baptized person in those places are your brother and your sister. They're people that we're connected to. And when I travel internationally, it's always... Uh, good when I find a brother or sister in Christ. When you travel in places like Turkey and you're walking through Istanbul and you know that 99% of the country is not Christian, 
and you find somebody who is, you're very happy about that. You're connected in a way. And I wonder how it is that we lose sight of that so easily, where even in our own town, where many people are Christians, they separate themselves by all sorts of nonsense. You have Baptists, Presbyterians, and Methodists, and non-denominational folks, and Evangelical Covenant folks, and people split hairs on all sorts of things. And you may not know this, but until 1054, you know how many churches there were? One. There was one church for more than a thousand years. Experts will say today, after the Reformation in 1517, right? There were two from 1054 forward, and then 1517 you get the Protestant Reformation, and and Lutherans, and then Methodists, and Calvinists, and, 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 and. And today, more than 40,000 different kinds of Christian movements. That's kind of nuts. 40,000 from one for 1,000 years to 40,000. So Jesus knew what he was praying, and he knew it was a big prayer for the unity of all believers. This is how he said it in the Gospel of John. I ask not only on behalf of these, these disciples that are following him, but also on behalf of all those who will believe in me. That's you and me. That's everybody who ever follows. That's us. He's praying for our unity, that we would care for one another, and that we would put differences behind and put love first, that they may all be what? One. One. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given them so that they may be one as we are one. You see the theme? Jesus is trying to help us get it. He says, I and them and you and me, that they may be, say it with me, completely one. So that the world may know that you've sent me. Is it any wonder that with 40,000 different stripes and fighting and infighting that the world no longer believes this? They look at the witness of the Christians and go, the stuff that Jesus says, that sounds right, but you guys don't do that. I'm not sure I want to be a part of that. We have to work towards being completely one with everyone else who claims the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, and I've loved them even as you have loved me. And of course, Jesus also modeled modeled it perfectly in obedience when he prayed in the garden. A few weeks ago, Chantel and I had the incredible opportunity to go uh, to a monastery um, and part of the beauty of that time in silence and in prayer and learning how to pray, learning how to hear God, is that the grounds are filled with religious art. Now, that's something that you won't find around here much. Um, it's, it's not so much in the Protestant tradition. We're, we're more Bible-based uh, with what we do. Um, but there's a real power in religious art. So as you walk the grounds there, you come across this sculpture of Jesus in a garden of olive trees. And, and have actually been to the Garden of Gethsemane in Israel, it's very similar. It looks very much the same. And so you can go, and there's Jesus on his knees crying out to the Father. And, you, and, and it's, so, it's heart-wrenching as you experience that. And then, yep, you look over to your right, and there's Peter asleep. Jesus asked Peter and James and John to come be with him in his moment of agony. And, and what do they do? Well, they just fall asleep because they're tired. Because they're humans. And then you look under the other tree, and yep, there's James and John, sacked out. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, where you're really trying to lean on people that you're closest to, and you're like, can you be there for me? And they want to, they mean to, but they're not. And you feel that loneliness, that betrayal. Not because they meant any harm or didn't mean well, they just 
Just couldn't do it. So the scripture says in Luke, then Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he kneels down, and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet, read this with me, not my will, but yours be done. That's a great prayer. It's a great prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a great prayer. Not my will, yours be done. That's a great prayer. But only in the Lord's Prayer does Jesus say, pray like this. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to learn how to pray like this. So in Matthew, Jesus says, pray then in this way. This is how you do it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, that doesn't seem like much when we say it. But to them, it was revolutionary. No one on earth thought of God as Father. When they thought of gods, they thought of the Pantheon. They thought of Greek gods. They thought uh, of the gods of Rome. Things like Mars and Zeus and Neptune that swept up the seas and wiped people away with tsunamis and tidal waves and fire and war. God says, no, no, no. Call me Father. It's a very familiar term. People had never, ever thought of a deity like that. It was always the opposite. They never could imagine a God that would serve them or bless them or care for them. They always, these, these were people who did child sacrifice, friends, that you would give anything just to try to appease a God. But why do we do this? Why, why do we pray if God already knows what we need? And we know this is true. Jesus says as much. He says, when you're praying, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, right? People outside the faith. For they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Today, we would call that incantation, right? We have to be really careful. We don't practice witchcraft. We don't believe that if you use a certain phrase enough times, then God will, you can make God do what you want him to do. It's not how it works. Do not be like them, Jesus says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, if that's the case, why do we pray? Well, sometimes to get to why, you have to know why not. And the first thing is, we're not praying to inform God. We're just not. And, and it's always uh, interesting to me and, and a little comical to me uh, where people are like, you know, I, I was praying about God and as if God didn't know it. Or as if God's up in heaven going, oh no, what am I going to do about that? Right? That's not who God is. God is the God of heaven and earth and under the earth and all things and all times and all places. So we don't pray to inform God. We also don't pray to convince God. God has what's best for you and God will always do what's best for you. Now, you and I sometimes will walk out of that. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. But God is always working for your good. So we don't pray to change God's mind. We don't pray to convince God of anything. What we do is we pray to express our hearts to God, to connect with God, and to open our lives to God's will. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time. And then he says this. Read it with me. Prayer does not change God. It changes me. That's the truth about prayer. It changes the person who's praying. And it changes the world. It gives you a new lens. It gives you new power. It gives you new insight. It gives you a new life. Another person said it like this. It's unknown, but I think it's really good to share. It says this. Prayer is to the soul what breathing is to the body. Our soul needs prayer. Our soul needs to connect to the one that made us. It's what we're made for. Just like we need air to breathe. 
And we need to be able to say to our God who loves us these things. These are great prayers. Thank you. Forgive me. Help me. Use me. Two-word prayers. Very powerful. Just thank you. When you wake up in the morning and you look outside and the sun is up, you say thank you. When you're at work or you're with your kids and you step in it as we all do from time to time, you don't live your life perfectly. None of us do. We simply say, Father, forgive me. I, I, I messed up. I blew that. Let, help me start again. Help me. Use me. So we come to this revolutionary idea that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, really is our Father. Our Father. They'd never heard something like that. Because in the Bible and in their context, God has many names. God is El, which is God in Hebrew. Elohim, which is used for God. Those of you who have been with me in Disciple Bible Study, you see this all in the, in the Old Testament or the Hebrew canon. There's El Shaddai. Many of you all have heard that before. God Almighty or Adonai, Lord. All these are words for God. None of them are Father. None of them are our Father. But the word that is used more often than any of the others, by far, and it's used some 6,000 times, is Yahweh. And this was a name that was so holy it was not to be pronounced. And so rather than saying God uh, or the kingdom of God, in Matthew, as a Jewish writer, he would say the kingdom of heavens, which means the same thing, but they would not use the name Yahweh because it was holy. It was not to even be uttered. And so notice these are all in capitals, the Lord. And so if you're in a study Bible, it will say the Lord all in caps when it's using Yahweh. It's used more than 6,000 times. And, and it's what God says to Moses. God says, well, Moses says, well, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. It also means he causes to be. I love that answer because God is bigger than we can ever imagine. God's saying, you can't put me in a box. I am who I am. I'm going to be who I'm going to be. I will become who I'm going to become. And there's nothing you can do about it, mortals. I am God Almighty, and you can trust me. I love you. In Exodus 3, it says this. Moses says to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am, that's his name, has sent me to you. When I was in youth group, we had T-shirts that said, He is, I am. And people would go, What? What? He is, I am. I am as God's name. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord God, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. So if you don't get I am, this is the same God that's connected to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Mary, Joseph, Jesus, Peter, you. So with all these huge names for God, some of which you could not even say out loud, Jesus teaches his disciples this rarely used phrase, our Father, our Father. So if God is our Father, then we are family with everyone else who has the same Father. Isn't this true? So if God is Father, then we are brothers and sisters, and we're to live that way. Adam Hamilton, in his book on the Lord's Prayer, says it like this. He says, we live in a world that is focused on my, mine, and me, but Jesus teaches us to pray our, us, and we. And so you'll notice that a lot of the times when we, when we speak here, we speak as our Father, together, 
We pray. Let us pray. Now let's pray together as the children of God. We, we don't have an individual faith or salvation. It has always been passed down to us from those before us, and it is shared among us, and it will be passed down again, I pray, to the next generations. Because God is the father of all nations, of all peoples, of both Ukrainians and Russians. And I know this is going to be a hard one for you, Republicans and Democrats. No kidding. Jews and Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and even atheists. I mean, think about this. If God is father, it doesn't matter whether the son believes in him or not. It doesn't change the fact that he's father. Right? It doesn't matter if one of your kids says, I don't believe in you anymore. Right? Well, that's going to be rough. But it doesn't change the fact that you're father. Now, when I was going through seminary, there are a lot of folks that really, really struggled with this father language, and I get it. I took a number of pastoral care classes uh, and learned lots and lots of things about uh, issues having to do with family, and, and we would read and read and read about horrific stories of terrible, terrible fathers. So, I mean, I get it. Uh, many of you, even in this room, when you think about your dad or your father, you're like, I, if that's what God is like, I don't want any part of it. Well, hold on. We've never said that God is like your father. What we're saying is, God is the pattern that all fathers are to model themselves after. A God of love, a God of grace, a God of forgiveness, a God of provision that provides and cares and never abandons us. So it's not the other way around. We have to make sure that the order is right. Because many earthly fathers are not good examples of what it means to call God father. They're just not. And even in the Hebrew canon, all the way back in the Old Testament, they even knew this. They, they knew that how, how terrible it was when your family system breaks down. The psalmist cries out to God and, and says this, It is not my enemies who taunt me. I could bear that. It's not adversaries who deal insolently with me. I could hide from them, but it is you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. You could put my father there. With whom I kept pleasant company, we walked in the house of God with the throng in fellowship, other scriptures say. This is a person who had been just ripped apart by their own family. And many of you know what that feels like. But here's the thing we have to remember, that God is the example of what a father is meant to be. Steadfast, loving, merciful, present. Always present. Jesus says, we'll not leave you orphaned or abandoned. I'm with you even to the end of the age, Jesus says. And then Jesus describes what God is like in case people missed it. Um, and, and I think the most beautiful story in all the Bible in Luke 15. In, in this parable, he says that you could say God, if you will. I mean, that's the father in this story. He sets off and the, the boy goes off and goes to his father. But while he was still far off, his father, this is what a father, loving father looks like, what God looks like. He sees him and he's filled with what? Compassion. That's who our father is. And he ran and he put his arms around him and he kissed him. Now, that's a God worth following, a God of love, a God of grace, a God of glory. But unless you think I'm just being silly, I, I do understand that God possesses both masculine and feminine dimensions. And there, there are plenty of pieces. You, you would remember that God chooses Mary to bring the salvation to the earth, right? Mary is the theotokos, the very bearer of God. You can't have Jesus without Mary, right? So we're, we're, not, we're not trying to play favorites or say this, but in that context, at that time, in that culture, it was important for people to understand the power and the love and the grace of God. And Father was uh, the relationship that Jesus had with 
the God who sent him. And so in case we miss this, all the way back in Genesis, it says this. So God created what? Humankind, right? Not man, but humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created, what's the pronoun? Them. Them. Male and female, he created them in God's image. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion, right? Rule with me over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So that's our Father, all of our Father, all of, of, of us who are loved by God. Well, which, which God is it? Because for them, there were hundreds of them. Well, this is the God in heaven. And around here, we know that we're kind of swimming upstream against the culture uh, who really doesn't understand heaven at all. But I'll remind us um, what Dallas Willard says about heaven because he's got it right, and that is that heaven is where what God wants done is done. Will you say that with me? Heaven is where what God wants done is done. And sometimes you've experienced this when you have a child, when you're at the communion rail, when you help someone in need, when you see a healing, when you see life. These are all things. You just know that you're in God's will. But it's still broken here on earth, isn't it? But there will be a day where it's perfect every time, every moment. So heaven is God's reign and realm where injustice Poverty, cruelty, and violence have been banished. They're no more. And we see this every once in a while here. But there will be a day where we see God face to face, and this will always be the case. Nobody's hungry. Nobody's hurting. Nobody is outside the love of God. Everyone's accepted. God has his eyes on those he loves. So the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heavens, if you will, It's both a present reality and a future state where the righteous dead live with God. So it is now and yet to be. So Jesus talks about this. Um, When he entered Capernaum, which is a town just north of Galilee, uh, a centurion came to him, appealing to him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible distress. And Jesus said to him, I will come and cure him. Now, the centurion, this means he's a Roman soldier that, that is over at least 100 other soldiers. And he answers, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only speak the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, which soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. So when Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, in no one in all of Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west, and here's the part I want you to pay attention to, will eat with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the kingdom of heaven. Well, friends... Are these folks dead or alive? They're alive in heaven, but they're well dead in Jesus' day, right? So if you're going to eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there has to be a future reality of which you go to do that. You you couldn't do that in the same week that Jesus was talking about it, right? So this heaven is also future as well as present. So heaven of the Bible lets us know that there's nowhere that we can go where God is not. And that's good news. Psalm 139 says it like this. Where can I go from your spirit? Nowhere. Or where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night. Mm -mm. Even the darkness is not dark to you, O God. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. And Paul writes this to the early church in Rome. He says, for I'm convinced that nothing 
Nothing on earth. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is good news, friends. This is the God of the heavens, of the past, the present, and the future. And it is that God whose name we want to hallow. Now, for most of us, the only time we use hallow is when? Halloween, right? All, you know, the eve of all saints. And so what what does this mean, hallowed? Or hallowed, it's very simple, actually. It's holy, it's sacred, it's set apart. And and so, again, back in Exodus 3, um, God says from, from the bush, says to Moses, Come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground, set apart. Now, Moses may have been across that you know, that piece of property a hundred times. But what makes it holy, what makes it sacred, what makes it set apart is that God's there in that moment. And maybe you've had that in your home or with a friend. You've walked past someplace and at that moment, at that time, it became holy. And in the Bible, they would often create little altars there to remind themselves that this is where I saw God, that God is real and this is where I saw him. And so in Exodus 20, in in the Ten Commandments, it says this, You shall not make wrongful use of the Lord your God, the name of the Lord your God. Um, Using the Lord's name in vain is how I learned it. Maybe you learned it that way too. Then it goes on to say that the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. So if you can take the Lord's name in vain, if you can use God's name wrongly, and this, this doesn't just mean in curse words. They can include that, but that's not the point. The point is mainly that when people take God's name and put it on their own agenda to try to win the argument. And, and, and you, you know this. I've even heard parents do this like, oh, don't do that, honey. It makes Jesus sad. No, it just makes you upset. Own it, right? Be honest with your kids. Jesus loves your kid, and he's going to forgive your kid just in the same way he forgave you. Don't, don't make kids afraid of Jesus or think that Jesus is sad about their because they ate a piece of candy. Candy's good. Right? We have to be careful how we use God's name. So if we can't actually use God's name wrongly, we can also use it rightly. We can also hallow it. So in the same way that religious folks can drive people away from God by misusing God's name, you and I, we can also draw people to Christ by hallowing God's name. Now, how do we do that? Adam Hamilton says it like this. We hallow God's name by living in a way that reflects God's goodness, God's majesty, God's beauty. And God's love. So our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Separate, holy, sacred is your name. So how do we do that? Well, I want to invite you this Lent, just for the next 40 days, uh, to try this out. To pray the Lord's Prayer in the pattern of the first Christians. Uh, There's a document known as the Didache, and it lets us know how the early church in the first century lived this out. And what they did is they prayed the Lord's Prayer at 9 in the morning, at noon, and at 3 p.m., they would just do this. And if you would set your clock or your calendar that, you know, in the morning, at noon, and at 3, and just remember how Jesus taught us to pray. You'd be amazed at what God might do. And so as you're praying this morning, noon, and in the afternoon, watch for connections and coincidences. Around here, we call them God incidences, right? Because it's just you pray these prayers, and what do you know? Today was different than the other days. And then finally, as we hallow God's name together, we, we want to live in a way 
that reflects God's goodness, God's mercy, God's beauty, and love so that you hallow God's name. And that's a great prayer to say, God, how could I hallow your name today? What would you have me do that would show the world that you are a good God, that you're a merciful God, that you're a beautiful God, that you're a loving God? Help me hallow your name. So, if you will join me, not too quickly, let's share in the Lord's name, his prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.